Bibles to the Mark's, Mark's Gospel, chapter 9. And as you're turning there, I'm going to pray for us. So, Lord, I just bow before you today. We recognize our, in the immensity of our need for you. And, Lord, I pray today as we hear these words that you will speak in such a profound way in our innermost being that this will become a life-changing event for us that this will be a defining moment in our lives, that, Lord, we will move from places of unbelief into our, in our lives to a place of confidence and hope and trust in you in a way we have never previously done it. I pray, Father, that we will see an outpouring of your Spirit in a way we've never witnessed before because our hope is in you. Our eyes are upon you. Our confidence is in you. And I pray, Lord, that today, this very day, that we will see miracles transpire in our families, in our own lives, in the life of our community, and in our nation. And we thank you for that, Father. And the people of God said, Amen. Amen. How many know that crisis and confusion are all around us in our world? Lots of difficulty. As a matter of fact, Many people argue over the right approach of dealing with the issues and the problems that we're constantly dealing with. You know, that's really the political situation, isn't it? We have a people who see problems, and they are the leaders, and they begin to express and say, these are the problems as we see them, and this is how we're going to approach the problem. Isn't that what happens? And so as a democratic nation, we make a decision based on how people present the problem and how people say they're going to solve the problem, who we're going to follow. And that, that generally happens. And then we look in our world today and we see so many relational tensions. We see racial tensions. We see religious tensions. We actually are dealing with war as a nation. Sometimes we forget this. There are soldiers are fighting on our behalf in Afghanistan still today. You know, we're in a war, but we forget that because we seem so far removed from the situation. Maybe more close to home is the economic distress that we're feeling right now. Oil prices have dropped. Thousands of people are now out of work. And all of a sudden, that grabs our attention because it begins to impact each of our lives. Maybe for some, you know, in other parts of the world, they're dealing with poverty. Maybe we haven't experienced that to the degree that other parts of the world have but poverty is a real issue. We talk about climate control. We can talk about health issues. The list of problems seem endless. As a matter of fact, while we may look afar at some of these issues, there are the personal issues that invade our own lives. For some, it's unrealized aspirations. What I hope has not occurred. Maybe there's financial tensions. Now that this economic distress is coming, it's affecting us. Maybe there's relational misunderstanding and it's affecting our sense of well-being and our family life. Or maybe we're dealing with addictions or stress or health issues or maybe an unexpected loss. These are just some of the issues that we could be battling with. And so the question I want to raise is, does faith have a bearing on how we handle these things? Do we, as believers, really believe and trust God? Or do crises begin to define our lives? And so I share a story that Ravi Zachariah tells in one of his books. It's a very painful story that was shared to him by a pastor. He, the pastor, told me of a young couple he had married some years ago who represented to him every ideal worth emulating. They embodied excellence to the youth of the church. 
Both were preparing to practice medicine. They were on sizable merit scholarships. In other words, these people, you know, had, you know, were smart. They had, you know, worked hard. They had garnered these, you know, scholarships to pursue their desire to be medical doctors. And as he drove away, this pastor drove away in his car after performing the wedding ceremony. He had rehearsed in his mind this grand occasion. It had been in all of his years of ministry, he had not seen a more radiant couple. He thrilled at the prospect of all that laid before them. But then, like a shattered dream, only a few months into their marriage, came a dreadful awakening. In the pre-dawn hours of a wintry night, the pastor's phone rang and a distraught voice begged him to come. The caller, the young man of such promise, kept stuttering the words. I think I've killed her. I think I've killed her. The minister, hastily dressed, rushed over to the couple's home only to find the young woman lying lifeless in her bed and her young husband sobbing inconsolably at her side. What had happened? How had, what had brought about this amazing tragedy? And after a long time of prying and pleading, the story was finally uncovered. Some weeks earlier, this young woman had discovered that she was pregnant. With years of study still ahead of them, they had not planned for this eventuality. They did not want to start a family. As a matter of fact, they, they were hoping that would happen after they got into their medical careers. But the sudden turn of events unsettled all of their plans, driving them desperately in search of some solution. This, they considered many options. Finally, words escaped her lips that she never thought she would ever utter. She said, this is so completely devastating, there's no way around it but to abort this child if our careers are to survive. The very suggestion opened a deep rift between them, and they were both known on their university campus for their outspoken convictions on the sanctity of a child's life in the mother's womb, and they fervently believed that each unborn child had a right of its own, but now the circumstances beyond their control had invaded their absolutes. In their mind, fate had threatened their autonomy. Conviction clashed with ambition, and they agonized over a private decision they hoped would never be betrayed in public. And that is when she proposed the final solution. Let's do this at home, she said. You bring all the equipment we need to the apartment, and no one need ever know. As a young medical student, he felt this could be accomplished, and so they nervously laid the meticulous plans for that fateful night. The young man was not fully trained in the administrations of the anesthetics. And as he stumbled through the procedure, he unwittingly gave her too large of a dose. And his greatest fear became a ghastly deed, and he lost his beloved. In the panicky moments that followed with trembling hands and a cry of despair, he reached for the phone and uttered those remorse-ridden words, Pastor, please hurry. Come to our apartment. I think I've killed her. How can two godly young people find themselves at the very end of a spectrum that they could never have imagined for their lives? How could this actually have happened? Obviously, to us who are hearing the story objectively, we can see they were, they were conflicted by two different values. The one, a value, a, one of a value system fostered in their souls over their lives to honor God, while at the same time the other value of using their God-given gifts, which at this moment seemed threatened. In other words, you can see how in their minds 
We give up this life to save many lives. All the rationalization for why we do what we do when our understanding of how life should be is threatened by events that obviously God has allowed. We are then forced to come to a place of whether we decide if by faith, if, if faith will prevail in our decision. You know, we all struggle with this. You know, it's so easy to say, this is what I'm about, this is what I stand for, this is what I believe, but until crisis comes into our lives, it's at that point that we find out just how deeply rooted our faith really is. It's our choice may not seem so dramatic. Oh, let me go back here and just say this. The issue always comes down to human autonomy versus God's sovereignty. Or to put it another way, God's will or my will. At that moment in their lives, we could say God had obviously a different plan than what they had planned for themselves. But you know, it's really hard when you have your mind set in a certain direction. Just change your direction when God obviously had a different purpose in mind. And it is just a real struggle sometimes that when our will is in conflict with what God wants, we struggle over those issues. It's not working out the way I thought it should. I'm disappointed with the way my life has gone. I'm disappointed with what has happened in this situation. This should not be the way it goes, God. And we can go on and on, and, and we make these decisions that affect not only our lives, but so often the lives of other people. Our choices may not seem as dramatic as, dramatic as I told in the story, but the eventual outcomes can be just as devastating when we consider that our will, which at, at times is followed at the expense of God's will, impacts and influences the lives of other people. Now, some of us have probably seen that movie, and it generally comes out around Christmas. It's called It's a Wonderful Life. Remember that? It's a Frank Capra movie. How many have ever seen It's a Wonderful Life? Jimmy Stewart, it's an old, old movie. You know what the story is really about? It's about a man who lives an unselfish life, who has a dream but never realizes his dream because he's so busy trying to help other people. And finally, at the end of the day, his uncle, who makes a terrible mistake, loses their money, puts their bank in jeopardy, and so James Stewart, the main character, is ready to end it all. And he goes to a bridge, and he jumps over the bridge. Unbeknown to him, he was in such a distraught condition, there were people praying for him, and an angel, I'm just telling you the movie, jumps overboard and rescues him. And then he does something very unusual. He said, I wish I had never been born. I wish I'd, you know, and so all of a sudden in the movie, we get a preview of what it would be like if our lives had never been lived. Frank Capper is trying to tell you that the life you live is very significant and very, very meaningful and it has a tremendous impact not only on yourself but on many other people's lives. And so the movie starts playing out just as if he had never lived and all of a sudden the people that he had helped in his life were no longer helped. And so the outcomes of their lives have been transformed that had been changed. How many of you know what I'm talking about? It's very, very powerful. You know, if you, next Christmas, watch it. It's worth seeing. You'll get an understanding. He's trying to tell you the value of a human life. So what I'm trying to tell you right now is that your life is so precious. It's so valuable, so important. You have no idea that when you and I make the right kind of choices, the kind of right kind of impact it has on other people's lives, we are influencing and impacting other people. 
Last week we looked at one of the most memorable stories in the life of Jesus. He goes up on a mountain and as he's praying, the Bible says he was changed. The Bible called it being transfigured. His nature, the divine nature of Christ is exuded out and three of his closest followers see Jesus as he's shining brighter than the noonday sun and immediately, you know, Elijah and Moses appear on the scene. And we talked a little bit about what happens when we experience this kind of change in our lives. As we pray, we are changed. But here in our text today, we find that the other disciples that are now at the base of the mountain, they're having a totally different experience. Rather than seeing Jesus in his glory, they're trying to deal with a major problem, and they're dealing with it in an unsuccessful manner. As a matter of fact, they are not able to handle the problem that has been brought to them. A desperate father arrives with his tormented son, and his disciples are incapable of delivering this young child. This immediately leads to great duress and criticism by the teachers of the law. It's a state of confusion. Now, I don't know if you know who Raphael is. He's a painter in the Middle Ages, and he has the final painting that he ever did before he died. He didn't quite complete it. Some of his, his assistants helped him with a couple of figures way at the periphery of the painting. So he spent four years making this painting. It's called the Transfiguration. And I want to just show you in this picture. And what he's done in the picture is captured the two events, the Transfiguration experience and what happens immediately after when Jesus comes down the mountaintop. And you'll notice in this painting that Jesus is in the very front uh, center of the painting. And on our right, as I'm looking at it, Jesus is left is Moses with the law, and on the other side is Elijah. And you can see the three disciples lying down as they were awakened. They see this amazing picture. But what Raphael does is paint down a little lower. And down the mountain, that's the picture down below, we see to the right the little boy. He's kind of got a blue robe there. He's pointing up. His mouth is gaping. He's tormented. His father's standing beside him. There are disciples. Some of them are pointing upwards. There's hands going in every which direction. Now, what I find interesting is that Raphael captures something of the overwhelming contrast between the glorious Mount Transfiguration and the troubled world waiting below. But now I want you to imagine something for a minute. When you, take, when you go on you know, the internet, and you pull this picture up, there's a whole bunch of images. And one of the images looks like this. What happens is we take Jesus out of the scene. And what you have now is a totally different scene. This is happening now at the base of the picture. Notice it's the exact same picture, but there's no Jesus in the picture. All you see is the disciples in the crowd. There's people pointing, there's confusion, there's clamor, and there's no Jesus on the scene. There's a problem, but nothing can be done about it. And folks, that's how we need to see the picture generally of what's happening in our world around us. Jesus is not seen for who he really is. And so the rest of us, we live in this kind of a situation where there's pointing and people are trying, you know, to point people beyond themselves to God. And yet there's, there's all this difficulty and frustration and identification with what's the real problem. And so today, I want us to look at three powerful elements that teach us a very profound understanding on the nature of believing prayer. I want to I look, look at the story of Jesus stepping into the scene. So the first uh, element of the nature of believing prayer is the plight of the world and the impotency of the church. In other words, when Jesus is not at the center of the church, 
how weak the church really is. How the world is really conflicted, how the problems just seem to get worse, and how the church seems to unable to cope with what is really happening. You see, the problem in Canada is not a political problem. You know, I think people talk about it as if it's a political problem, but the problem is far deeper than that and far greater. We have so many issues, folks, that all of the things that people are addressing are really symptomatic of a deeper issue. And the deeper issue is this, that we are literally divorced from God. We are separated from God. We are like that picture that Raphael paints just below the transfiguration experience. God is not in the equation. And when God is not in the equation, you're going to have all kinds of problems. So we take a look here, and I want to raise the question, why is it that the church at times seems so powerless? Well, I say remove Christ from the scene and you have a church that is powerless in the face of crisis. A church without Christ can never satisfy the longings and needs of people. But the moment that Jesus comes on the scene, everything changes. And we're going to see that in the story. Take Jesus out of the scene, you got problems. Put Jesus into the scene, you have someone who's addressing the root of the issue. And we're going to see that in a moment. So, why are there times when we are so ineffective in reaching out to others. And we're going to see that in our text. The disciples are trying to deal with this demonic situation, this, this little boy who's being tormented by evil spirits. They're trying to deal with this thing. And what you and I need to understand is uh, that these people are unsuccessful in dealing with the bondage and the distress and the sorrow and the heartache that this father is experiencing with his child. Let's pick up the story in Mark chapter 9, verse 14. It says, when they came to the other disciples, now they've come down from the mountain, they're coming down to where the other nine are, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. Now that word arguing there is a very strong verb. It's basically there's a confrontation going on. They're, you know, and unless you're, you know, Canadians, we're kind of polite about our arguments. I mean, this is kind of a vehement, not so nice, nasty, you know, contention. This is like all out nasty. And so Jesus sees this and it says, and as soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. No, I can't think of a better verse in the Bible to describe what true worship is. This is what it says, when they saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder. Do you know what real worship is? It's wonder. W-O-N-D-E-R. It's when we're in awe. There's a sense of mystery. We can't fully grasp what God is like. He's transcendent. He's beyond us. He's above us. And so when you and I truly worship God, what we're doing is we're, we're in awe of who he is. We're just like mesmerized. I could use another term. I've got to use some other words to give us a, a picture of what it's really like. It's not just going through emotion. It's like, wow. We have the wow moments when we're really worshiping God. <clears throat> Excuse me. It says, they ran to greet him. And Jesus comes on and he says, well, what are you guys arguing with them about? And Jesus' disciples were obviously arguing about what was happening and what they were incapable of doing. It says, the father speaks up in verse 17. He says, a man in the crowd answered. The disciples didn't, but the man did. He said, teacher, I brought you my son who's possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. He's unable to even communicate. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. 
This is a classic description of an epilepsy seizure. Now, let me just point out something. Not every epileptic is demonized, okay? But in this particular situation, the child is. This is what's causing this kind of a seizure, okay? Does everybody hear what I just said? I kind of qualified that statement. Everybody get that? So don't go out there trying to cast out demons out of all people that are epileptics. That's not what we're talking about here. But in this particular case, this demon would throw him in a seizure. Okay. It says here, I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Now, we have to understand one thing. The disciples, to this point, had actually cast out demons. They had been commissioned by Christ. They had successfully done it. Earlier in Mark's gospel in chapter 6, we read here in verse 12, they went out and preached that people should repent. The next verse said, they drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So they had experience in this realm, okay? So, but now they're not having any success. We're going to talk about why that is just a little bit later. But they were having a very difficult time with it. Now, so, James Brooks, you know, he's a scholar. He says, you know, he brings out this idea. Because later on they're going to talk about, well, Jesus said, this kind does not come up but by prayer. And James Brooks says, having been previously been able, able to exercise demons, the disciples assumed they could do so whenever they wished. In other words, they thought the power was inherent. In other words, it's within them. They failed, however, because of their lack of faith. Spiritual power must be maintained and renewed. Disciples then and now must constantly learn and relearn this lesson. What is he saying? He's saying, listen, guys, we have to live in constant dependency on God. We should never make the assumption that because we successfully did something earlier in our life that we can continue to do it successfully in the tomorrow. In other words, it's not conditioned on what we have done in the past. It's conditioned on our relationship with Almighty God. Do we live a life of continuous dependency on God? That is the key idea that Brooks is trying to bring across. Now, Obviously, they assume that they could do it because of past successes. How many, that's usually our nature. If we've done something successfully in the past, we assume we can do it again in the future. We should never do that. That's a mistake. We need to be a little more humble than that. We need to recognize we need to be dependent on God. So they were probably wondering what went wrong. Not only did this create some consternation inside of their own souls. Can you imagine now the religious leaders who were there seeing their inability to deal with the problem immediately seized upon that and began to criticize the disciples. Isn't that true? As Christians, when you and I fail to do what God's asking you, when we fail to achieve the task God sets before us, that we get very quickly criticized by culture. Isn't that true? Happens just like that. You know, they want to do that. They want to be critical of these things. So, this criticism was leveled at the disciples, but really, ultimately, who were they leveling the criticism at? Well, the right answer in Sunday school is, yeah, 90% of the time the right answer is Jesus, right? They were leveling it at Jesus. This was their opportunity to criticize Jesus because uh, one of the writers, Kettle, in his theological dictionary of the New Testament says, the man commissioned is always the representation of the man who gives the commission. In other words, these disciples were commissioned by Jesus, but the fact that they couldn't do it spoke of Jesus' 
you know, something to do with Jesus not being able to fulfill what he gave them to do. In other words, he represents in his own person the person and rights of the other. So when you and I stand as a Christian before people, who do we represent? Jesus. And so when you and I fail, who do people perceive fails? Not just us, but Christ himself. And you can understand why Jesus asked the question, what in the world is going on here? He could see that they were under duress. He could see that his disciples were being criticized. So Jesus comes on the scene. I always love it when Jesus comes on the scene. Something's going to happen. How many know that's true? You bring Jesus on the scene, things are going to change very quickly. Matter of fact, the first thing Jesus does is move from this chaotic situation. How many know that in confusion and chaos, there's all kinds of evil work? But Jesus comes on the scene and immediately sets things straight. He, he walks up, he says, hey, what's going on? The father answers and says, well, I brought my son to you, Jesus, but you weren't here. Your disciples were. I asked them to do something about my son, but they were incapable of doing it. And this is the end result. There's just been a huge, you know, our, you know they've been fighting. The religious leaders are now criticizing your disciples. Okay, let me move on. The second thing. Well, I, th I, I think we can say it this way. When the church fails to fulfill its mission, the people in our world around us see that as a failure of Christ himself. And that's why the church today, it's very important that we become what we're supposed to be because we represent Jesus, and when we mess up, the world thinks Jesus is impotent. He's got no power. See, that's the problem. That doesn't mean he has no power. That's just what people perceive. Let me move on to the second thing we can learn about the nature of believing prayer. Secondly, is that the problem is exposed and the power of Christ revealed. You know, a lot of times, the reason why we're not solving problems is we haven't identified the core problem. You know, when I'm, when I'm listening to people present problems to me, and every counselor is going to tell you this, you have what we call the presenting problem. And the presenting problem is never the root problem. Does everybody follow this? So everybody comes to you and they say, this is my problem. What I'm listening for is, yeah, that's the problem. That's the symptom of the problem. What's the, really the root problem? That's the presenting problem, but what's the really core issue? What's really at the heart of this thing? What's the real issue? And I think for most of us, all we can focus in on are the symptoms and the presenting problems. And I think even in our culture today, even with political leaders, that's all they're dealing with, by the way, is the presenting problems. They're very rare that people come actually and deal with the core issues. But watch what Jesus does. He has an ability to do that over and over again. So Jesus' response, I think, is extremely insightful. He's focusing in on the core issue. Look at verse 19. Here's the core problem. Jesus answers, O unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. I'm going to take care of this problem. What was the problem? What was the problem? Unbelief. He's saying the reason why is there's so much doubt. There's so much unbelief. This is the core issue. You know, Who's Jesus addressing here with this indictment? Who's he saying doesn't have faith? Well, Robert Stein, a biblical scholar, says there's three possible answers. He said it could be the unregenerated, that means the non-believer, that is the crowd or the father, because we know that he's going to rebuke the father. He's gonna, remember, he's going to tell the father down the road, we're going to see it, you know, he, the father's going to be challenged in his belief. As a matter of fact, my prayer today is you're going to be challenged in your belief. We need to be challenged today. I don't think we know this, but we do need to be challenged. 
We live in a culture that breeds skepticism. I don't know if you guys know this. I am deeply perplexed, not perplexed, I'm deeply concerned, is a great word, uh, frustrated. We live in a culture today that actually breeds skepticism and unbelief. We doubt everything. Our whole method of inquiry, our whole education system is we're trained not to believe. How many know that's true? We're only trained to believe if we see it. It has to all be proven to us before we embrace an idea. And yet faith doesn't come that way. We know that faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing by the Word of God. I would even argue today, you know what? If we didn't have our education system and you only had this particular book called the Bible, that's all you read from the time you were little to the time you were an adult. This is the only book you have ever read. I can guarantee you, you wouldn't even be dealing with life the way we're dealing with it as Canadians. We would not be looking at problems the way we look at them as Canadians. We're so full of doubt and unbelief, it's unbelievable. <laughs> it's discouraging at times. Because when God says something, we just kind of immediately flip into skeptic mode and we have a hard time believing anything. We just don't believe in miracles. We don't believe in this stuff. You know, when we finally see a miracle, it's kind of shocking to us. And that's why next Sunday, I'm having someone come here from another part of the world to share an amazing story that's going to shatter your concepts of, of what life is like around the world. I'm going to bring somebody in here. Who, when he tells the story, you're going to think you're listening to the Bible. You're going to hear miracle upon miracle, and I'm doing this on purpose because we need to hear this. We need to hear how other people in other parts of the world are living and some of the persecution they're experiencing and how God is doing interventions in other parts of the world. And this person, by the way, is an intellectual person because they're a trained attorney. So they're an extremely gifted communicator, but they're going to tell you how God supernaturally intervened. Otherwise, he won't be standing here because he would have been dead. You need to hear the story. That's what's going to happen next Sunday. I think you need to invite people. You're going to be shocked how powerful this is. So who is, who is Jesus commenting to you unbelieving generation is it just the crowd or is it the disciples is he just speaking to the disciples you know i love what uh biblical scholar uh cranfield writes he said the disciples had to learn that god's power is not given to men in that way it has rather ever to be asked for afresh in prayer and received afresh in other words, you and I, we just, it's not like our safety deposit box. or you know, It's not our bank account. It's just not sitting there. You and I have to daily pursue God to have a fresh encounter with God so we can deal with the problems that we're meeting afresh every single day. To trust in God's power in the sense that we imagine that we have it in our control and at our disposal is tantamount to unbelief. For it is really to trust in ourselves rather than in God. Wow. What is he saying? You and I have delegated authority. Authority in our life is not inherent. You and I don't carry this stuff inside of us. It's from God. We are only a vessel, a channel of God's grace that flows through us. So every day you and I need to connect with God so we have a fresh, you know, impetus coming from God's spirit and life within us so that when we're confronted with the issues of the day, we have something to offer. 
But for most of us, we just think, oh, no, I'm a Christian for 30 years. I know what to do in this situation. But that's how Christians make terrible decisions. That's how we, you know, sin. That's how we, you know, have, you know, make, make the wrong choices. That's how we violate God's will, and we do our own thing, and it's happening all the time. We are an unbelieving generation. As a matter of fact, we could go on and say, what about the entire group? Robert Stein thinks it's that way. In de- in de- the difficulty in determining the exact addressee, who's the people he's talking about, it's compounded by the fact that in you know, verses 22 to 24, the lack of faith is found in the Father. In verses 28 and 29, he's dealing with the lack of prayer by the disciples and that particular kind of demonic activity that only prayer can address, and we're going to get to that. But Stein argues that it's against all of them. All of the above are guilty. Regardless of whom Jesus is directing his comments to, we need to see that at the heart of the problem is a real lack of belief in Christ, and the result of unbelief is that we're kept living in Satan's domain, which is sin. And this is what I've noticed as a pastor, and I'm just going to quote the Apostle Paul, because the only people that have a choice to sin or not sin are believers. The non-believers don't have a choice. They're living in the dominion of sin, and therefore they perpetuate sin and continue to sin. But the Christian has a choice. And Paul, in writing to, Ro- in, to the church at Rome, says it this way, Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Who is he talking to here? He's only talking to one group of people, and that's Christians. And you and I every day are making a choice. Who are we going to obey? Who are we going to listen to? Are we going to do the right thing or the wrong thing? Are we going to do God's will or our will? Sometimes they're the same. Our will and God's will are the same. That's if we have a renewed mind. That's if we have a desire after the things of God. Or do we just, you know, have, you know, there's, there's, there's two value systems coming at us all the time. You know, when you're not a Christian, you don't have this problem. You only have one value system. That's the system of this world that's against God anyways. But when you're a Christian, you have two value systems. You got the voice of this culture telling you to do certain things, and then you have the voice of God speaking a totally different value system that's opposite of what the value system of this world is. And you know, you can know the right things, but how many here in this room says, Pastor, I knew the right thing, but I didn't do it? How often does that happen in our lives? I wanted to do the right thing, but I didn't do the right thing because you know what? The pull of what society was calling me to became stronger than the pull of God. And why does that happen? Because we're not in God's presence. Because the disciples that were on the mountaintop were in a different, different place than the ones that were down below. My argument is simply this. When Christ's presence is, a, is recognized by ourselves, when we recognize that God is in our midst, in our personal lives, day by day, it affects how we behave and how we think. Well, Jesus addresses the problem. Verse 20, so they brought him. When the Spirit saw Jesus, notice how the demons respond to Jesus. It says here, uh, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Now, how many know that at this moment, you and I would have rushed in there like, you know, paramedics to handle the situation? Jesus has a conversation. 
I mean, this has been going on. So he turns to the Father. And how many know that actually it's harder to create faith in the human heart than it is to deliver from demonic oppression? It's actually harder to create faith. So Jesus stops. He's watching this little boy wallow. He turns to the Father and he says, how long has he been like this? From childhood, the Father said. He's often, been, he's often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. Isn't that what Satan wants to do with all of our lives? Destroy us? Of course. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus answers him, if you can. Listen to what this man is saying to Jesus. If you can. How many know God can? How many know Jesus can do this? So Jesus says, what do you mean, can I? Of course I can do this. Well, then have pity on us. You know what the question now comes up? Yeah, God can do this, but will God do this? Is God willing to do this? Can I just stop us right now? I want to make a statement. God is not only able to do it, God wants to do it. How do you know God wants to do it, Pastor? Let me ask you another question. Think of the most compassionate person you have ever met. And I'm going to tell you that Jesus is a million times more compassionate than that. Lock that in your little brains for a minute. So when you think, oh God, I mean, why why wouldn't God do this? I mean, isn't God compassionate? You know why we think God's not compassionate? Because we see things, we see suffering in the world, and we think, well, if God was compassionate, why doesn't he do more? And here's the answer. Because we're hindering him from doing it. We keep blaming God for the evil in the world, and I wonder if God's looking at us and saying, with me, all things are possible. Of course I can do this. Of course I can heal this child. Of course I want to do this. Isn't that beautiful? Are we getting a picture here for a minute? He's being challenged. God is being challenged. Jesus is being challenged. The Father is saying, if you can do this, please have pity on us. Jesus is saying, if I can... He's taking the very words of the Father. If I can, he says. And then he says this, everything is possible for him who believes. What's hindering the situation is our unbelief. How's that? That's kind of a challenge. You see, we keep wanting to put the responsibility for our problems on other people. Come on now. We love to do that. We don't want to take personal responsibility. It's a lot easier to blame other people for the way things are in our life, but why don't we just take personal responsibility? Maybe it's just because I don't trust God. Maybe that's the real issue. Maybe that's the core issue. Maybe that's what Jesus is getting at. I think it is. Will we exercise believing prayer, or as James frames it in his book, the prayer of faith? Listen to what James says. If any one of you is sick, he should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith, believing, will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. Who is responsible for healing that person? The Lord, not the prayer. I don't look to the prayer to raise anybody up. And you know what's so crazy as Christians? Oh, I got to go hear so-and-so. They have a ministry of healing. What are we talking about? Nobody has anything apart from God. And what I'm telling you today is we have to seek God now. 
It has to be in the moment. It has to be at this moment. It has to be in the today moment. It has to be us trusting God, not trusting some human being. Now, I know God uses people. I don't have a problem with that. I know God uses doctors. I don't have a problem with that. But when we make those things the source rather than God, we're in trouble. And that's what we tend to do. We look to people rather than to God. Isn't that true? At the heart of the issue is whether we truly believe. Here we see the heart of what believing prayer is. And it's going to be far different than what you think it is. I want to define for you what believing prayer is. Look at verse 24. This is going to really impact you. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Now, James Edwards says, The sole bridge between frail humanity and the all-sufficiency of God is faith. How many know without faith it's impossible to please God? You have to believe that he is and that he's what? A rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We just have to believe God. The means by which the exousia, that's the word authority in Greek, that's the anglicized form of it, the exousia of Jesus, his divine authority and legitimacy becomes effective in human life. The means is faith. The statement that everything is possible to him who believes must appear to the Father as an elusive hope. However, for the faith he needs to heal his son is a faith he does not have, or so he thinks. True faith is always aware of how small and inadequate it is. I want you to highlight this. This is so critical. Because here's where we make the big mistake in the church world. The Father becomes a true believer not when he amasses a as sufficient quantum of faith. Okay, in other words, it's not when he's pumped up enough and he has enough faith that this is going to happen. See, that's what we've been taught. If you only had enough faith, it's going to happen. It's not the amount of faith, folks. It's not coming from us. It's the object of faith. Who is the object of faith? What's the right answer? Thank you, Jesus. Get your eyes off yourself. See, we go, I've got so many misgivings. I've got so many doubts. I've got so many issues in my soul. See, that's where our whole focus, I've got to find someone who really believes. Listen to what he's saying. The father becomes a true believer, not when he amasses a sufficient quantum of faith, but when he risks everything on what little faith he has, when he yields his insufficiency to the true sufficiency of Jesus. I do believe me. Help me to overcome my unbelief. You know what believing prayer is? I'm going to give this to you. This is my definition of believing prayer. You can argue with me. This is what I'm going to give it to you. Believing prayer is when we are looking ultimately to Jesus. He becomes our only real option, our only real hope. We know that he can use means and people, but they are not the source of our hope Jesus is. What I'm saying to you is when you and I finally say, you know what, I can't do this, and you're the only option, And yeah, I have all these misgivings, but I'm looking to you and you alone. I don't know how you're going to do it. You may use people, you may not. That's up to you. I don't argue those points. I don't try to tell God how to do it. My eyes are on you, Lord. Help me to overcome all my doubts and fears and apprehensions. That's believing prayer. When we finally become authentic, you know, we are so inauthentic, it's, it's, it's absolutely startling. And when you and I really become authentic with God, that's when we really have believing prayer. How's that? How many think, I think I can wrap my mind around this. 
When I finally admit to God, I'm a mess and I need your help. When I finally admit, God, I need you to do this. I can't do it. I, can't. I mean, I, I, we've turned every which direction. I've gone to every which person I know. But you know what? I'm coming to you and to you alone. My dependency is on you. This father was desperate. He had a little boy who couldn't talk. This little boy could not help himself. The enemy was trying to destroy his son, and he brought him to Jesus. Even the disciples couldn't do anything. But Jesus can. And when he said, can you, Jesus? Jesus says, of course I can. When he said, Jesus, will you? Jesus said, of course I will. You see, all Jesus needs is for you and I to put our trust in him. And it releases him to work. Look what happens. Change. Well, let me move on to the third point. Oh, we're running out of time, but I want to get to this. Is the cry that reveals faith. There is a petition and a cry that comes from the heart of genuine desire, longing, and faith. It's the cry that arrests the attention of God. I already brought it out to you earlier with blind Bartimaeus. Remember, he was shouting out to God. But you know the NIV translate the Father's words as he exclaimed. Oh, it's a bad translation. I don't like that word, exclaim. If I was to translate the Greek word there, which I did, Crazen, crazen means to cry out. It means to shout. Actually, crazen, or it's a derivative of it, is actually in the blind Bartimaeus' story when he's crying out and shouting out to God. How many get the idea? This isn't the father just saying, oh, you know, you know I believe, help my unbelief. No, this is the cry of his soul. Are you guys getting the picture? How many are getting the idea that this is a cry of his innermost being? He's crying out to God. He's desperate. He says, yes, God, you're right. He says, I do believe, but help my unbelief. And immediately, what does Jesus do? When Jesus saw that the crowd, verse 25, was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit, you deaf and mute spirit. He says, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Now, I like that last little expression. Why? Because I read in the Bible, sometimes these demons left and they came back. Jesus said, I don't ever want you coming back. By the way, if Jesus says that's going to happen, it's going to happen. But you know what? A couple of things that happened that's really inter interesting in the story. It says the spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently. He came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. Jesus then took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. Now, there's some notable things. First of all, I've already said it. Jesus said, be gone. Never come back. The second thing, though, was after this exorcism, he looked like he had died. You know, I like what James Edwards says. The intervention of Jesus, in other words, looked like he'd made things worse than better. How many ever noticed that when Jesus shows up on the scene, sometimes things get a little more challenging? As a matter of fact, he goes on, is the result of the father's fledgling faith the death of his son? Salvation is a process in which things must sometimes become worse before they become better. How many have had that experience? You've prayed and things got worse. Anybody have that experience? Oh, we got some honest people here. And my point is simply this, that's the way it normally works. Because you see, until th things can never change until they get worse. Because for most people, we don't change unless things get worse. Isn't that the problem? That's what happens. You know, the first test of the Father's faith is to trust the word and promise of Jesus alone and not the immediate empirical consequences of it. Wow. 
Do you know what's fascinating? The very words, he lifted her up by the, him up by the hand and lifted him up, that word means he raised him up. That's actually the word that speaks of Christ's resurrection. That's actually the term that was used when Jesus raised a little sick girl from her deathbed, from her, from her death. It's the idea of resurrection. This is actually a foreshadowing of Jesus' own resurrection. This is actually turning something that was dead in back to life. Now, this boy hadn't died. I already know that. But it's a symbolic picture of it. It's resurrection language. It's resurrection power. So now we come to the close of the story, and what do we read in verse 28? After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples said privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He said, this kind can come out only by prayer. Now, now you'll notice you have these little notes, and some manuscripts just say, and fasting. Can I just say something? The early manuscripts just said prayer. Copyists added and fasting. It sounds more spiritual, doesn't it? But I'll tell you why they probably did that. Because the early church fasted often. As a matter of fact, I was just studying a document of the ancient church called the Dadachi. In the Dadachi, it said that you should, you know, it talked about how you should pray and that your fasting should be unlike the fasting of the religious hypocrites. And you know how often the early church fasted? Twice a week. So the early church was given to prayer and fasting, a little bit unlike our culture, right? You know, we do it once in a while. We just came through three days of prayer and fasting. Was that good for us? Very good for us. Early church fasted often. But why am I bringing this point out? Because it's not about what we do. See, we think, well, if I fast, this is going to earn some sort of merit before God. Fasting does not do that, folks. The point that Jesus is making is that you and I learn to trust God. That's the point of the story. That's what it's all about. And so I want to raise the question as we close the service. I'm going to have you stand right now. What crisis are you currently facing? What situation is beyond your ability? And maybe the crisis is not in your personal life, but in someone you love. How many here, you can think of someone? You know, that little boy did not get free because of his faith. He had none. What happened was the father stood on his son's behalf. Can you think of people that you need to stand on behalf of? Can you think of people that it will take your faith, your faith in God to help them? Can you think of somebody right now? Well, everybody that you know that's lost is not going to be saved apart from you helping them. How many have got that figured out? See, you don't see you see how disconnected we are to the story? I can see it by, by your responses. The Bible said Jesus came to brought a four friends brought a paralyzed man to Jesus. They lowered him in the house through the roof. Remember that story? The Bible says when Jesus saw whose faith? Whose faith? The friend's faith. Thank you. Not the paralyzed man. He saw their faith. Folks, are you hearing this? There are people that are afflicted. There are people that are tormented. There are people that are sick. There are people that are lost. Whose faith do we need to have? Not theirs. Our faith. You see, we have a funny idea that the culture, see, we've got to stop cursing the culture. It's not working. You know why? 
Because the reason why the culture is the way it is today is because of the church. Are you hearing this? If we do our job, we will impact the culture. If we don't do our job, the culture will continue to perish. Okay? I don't expect non-Christians to behave like Christians. I think that's an unfair expectation. Boy, only a few of you agree with this. How many, by raising your hand, believe that it's unfair to expect non-Christians to behave like Christians? Raise your hand. Good. The majority of you now understand that. It takes God's spirit to behave like a Christian. They don't have that. It's unfair to expect them to behave like us. So what's the job of the church? We represent Christ. And if we're impotent, we're without power, if we're not exercising faith, if we're not standing up for them, what's going to happen to them? They're going to perish. So, you know, we need to be sitting here saying to ourselves, the biggest issue that we're faced with as a church today is the condition of our community and our nation. And we need to be looking around and saying, you know what, this person needs my faith to help them. How many here you have a person you love to see come to Jesus Christ? Is there anybody here you have somebody like that? It's going to take your faith to make it happen. Your faith. Not their faith. Your faith. You have to believe for them. Just like the father believed for his son. When you and I will believe for them. Are you following the track of what I'm going down here? How many are seeing what I'm saying? When you believe for them. And you stand in the gap for them. And you say, Lord, yes, I have... I got some unbelief issues. I got some doubt issues. I got some skepticism issues. I am not, you know, 100% pure faith. I want to be real with you, God. I've been disappointed. I don't see everything I'd like to see happen. Let's be honest with God. Don't you think he already knows that exists in our soul? But when we get a little more desperate and we cry out to God, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We're going to release the hand of God to move in a supernatural way into people's lives. We're going to see people healed and delivered. As a matter of fact, this morning as we were praying, and 15 men joined me in prayer this morning, I said today, people are going to get saved. Today. People are going to get set free from depression and despair. And so with every head bowed this morning, it's going to happen today. How many here say, you know, Pastor, I don't know Jesus, but I want to know him today. I want to know that Jesus, and when he comes down off that mountain, everything changes. I have crisis in my life, and I want to know Jesus. And you have never met him before, but today you want to meet him. Just with an uplifted hand, I'm going to pray with you that you're going to get to know Jesus. Anyone here today? Just raise your hand real quick. How many here say, you know, Pastor, I'm despairing. I'm battling emotional issues in my soul. I want to be free. Just raise your hand. That's you. Just raise your hand. Keep them up. I'm going to pray for you. Keep them up, guys. Don't be embarrassed. Jesus is in the house. I want God to set me free. Okay. You can lower them. How many here say, you know, there's people that I'm concerned about, and they need my faith? Raise your hand. I'm going to stand for them. I'm going to believe for them. I'm going to see God deliver them. 
either going to deliver them from sin, addictions, health issue. I'm going to stand. I'm going to believe. I say, Lord, help my unbelief. I'm going to stand. God is going to move supernaturally, folks, if we will do this. And today we're doing it. Today is the day of salvation because you are standing right now. Think of that person right now. You're saying, I'm believing for America right now. God is going to release his power into those situations. Because we're not looking to a pastor. We're not looking to a church. We're not looking to, you know, we're looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. We're looking to the one who has all the power. He created the ends of the world. He created the universe, folks. This is not too hard for him, folks. And he has compassion. You need to know it. He is going to move supernaturally in those situations. You're going to witness miracles because you are standing there saying, Lord, help my unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. You're going to be like that dad going, whoa. And it may get worse initially, but it will get better. Jesus will lift them up. He will raise them up. You will see it. You will witness it. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, dear Lord.